What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the first episode of the Nori Podcast. My name is Sean Noriega. I have on this episode with me fellow coach at Nori Powerlifting, Chance Mitchell. And this podcast is ultimately going to encompass all things powerlifting, as well as topics that all of us coaches here at Nori Powerlifting want to discuss relating to business, life, our experiences in sports, We'll be having our other coaches on these calls going forward, uh, Jaron, Michael Jinn, Eric Larson, Aiden Raider. But today, it's just me and Chance. Chance, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for uh, thank you for coming on today. I'm excited, man. Podcasts are my thing. I know, I know. I've been on yours. I really enjoyed it. How uh, how is the how has your podcast been going? <laughs> As you see, we uh, have been on a hiatus, uh, but I definitely <laughs> want to get you on um, and a couple other people that I kind of like went through like a break and needed to get like back onto this. I, I really enjoy it. I think it's, it's needed. And I think like specific topics, um, that we're going to talk about like today, I think are, you know, what people want to listen to, especially, um, from people that like have been through it. So yeah. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Well, before we get into the topic today, I wanted to talk about your last competition because I think so many people, and, and I know that you, uh, expressed a lot of gratitude for it. I think so many people were pulling for you and so many people were just happy to see uh, everything come together for you. So, I mean, American record deadlift, 804, am I correct? 804, 805, 805, 305.5. Yeah. You can never shortchange a power lifter on his pounds. It's always funny when people say they pull 700 and then people are like, nope, 699.9. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, yeah, this man. is this is the weird, the weird one where like, you know, like I've deadlifted over 800 multiple times, right? And like in training and then in comp. And then also like when people ask like, you know, say for for example, like you bench like 507. You don't say you bench 507. You bench well over 500 pounds. I bench well over 500. <laughs> so like I deadlift well over 800 pounds. So anytime <laughs> anybody asks me, it's like, yeah, I deadlift a lot more than 800. <laughs> so uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, talk to us about the meet, man. I mean, I was so, so happy to see how it turned out. And and I want to hear how you feel about it, what your sentiments about it are. And then uh, to, before we branch off into the general topic today, I just want to hear about, you know, what you did differently, how you pushed to really, you know, yield this this outcome for this competition, you know, drawing from maybe some notes that you had from your Raw Nationals uh, performance. So there's a few things that me and you have already talked about, and I want to try to like, we'll kind of like ease into some of those things. Um, I really, it's weird, you know, like when you compete at like a really high level and, you know, things either go well or they don't go well, you know, like at nationals, that's the big priority meet. And so this meet was kind of like, hey, let's, you know, just keep building. I'm not going to like pull off of the gas too much, um, but I just want to like do what I think I'm capable of. Mm -hmm. And at nationals, and this is a weird thing that like, let's first off like in the in the sense of like equipment do you think the different bars matter for deadlift i i, I really i want to know your answer because i think you you disagree with me a little bit well i, I don't think they don't matter i think at, at a certain weight they absolutely do okay. um i'll say in my own experience like i have pulled like equivalent amounts on different bars but i will say that those comparisons would be made between like 
like training on one bar and then comparing it to like meat day on another bar where I potentially just feel better on it. Mm -hmm. Like I definitely have my preference of bars to pull on. And yeah. even if it's not like a, uh, you know, in theory, the differences between like the PSI on the bars is, is fairly minimal, at least yeah. like for yeah. the, for the ones that are actually used in comp, but they definitely do give a, a different feel. Like for me, I hate pulling on the stainless steel Ohio. Like for me, I just hate that bar for whatever reason, it feels like whippy enough to throw me off, but not whippy enough to help. Whereas like the Alika, yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing for me. I don't know. I don't know why I, I feel that way, but I hate pulling on that bar. And then like the Alico bar feels like as stiff as the, as the black Ohio to me, but like, I, I like the grip better of the Alico. I know what you're getting at. Cause, cause I think for, for everybody, and I had this conversation with someone more recently um, because I made a meme about the uh, the zoo culture plates being light <laughs> and yeah. they are they're super, super light. But Absolutely. even, you know, and we've we've had this conversation many, many years ago. And I think a lot of people know this. But like, you know, when you when you get to a certain level of strength, like you could be on a stiff bar and pulling on pound plates and you could pull significantly, significantly more. And I think that when you're comparing, you know, someone who pulls like 800 like yourself, um, you know, if you're talking about the difference between like just making a lift and just missing a lift, I, yeah, I think that I think the bars can make a difference for sure. So, so my opinion actually changed. I used to be further on the spectrum of, wow, like this bar is a million times, you know, worse, or, you know, like if the if the tensile strength is you know barely off, then it's going to make this huge difference. And I don't think that anymore. I think my issue and me, it's like more of a me personally thing is the knurling. So the coating, like that black oxide coating over the knurling, mm -hmm. for me, when I when I try to grip onto it, and I, like you probably have seen like how I grip, I grip like pretty quickly, but then I like hold the bar, I don't squeeze it, and I just like let it sit in my hand. But mm -hmm. I can't do that when that knurling is like covered with the, the coating, and it, it feels difficult to like wrap around securely. So then I have to like re-grip it again, and so that pulls me forward a little bit. And so that's like, that's my whole thing. Like, because of the tensile strength, I don't think matters that much, but if you have to squeeze the bar more, that makes a big difference, right? Like if, for example, like the knurling's very bad, you have to really grip into the bar to be able to hold it. And yeah. if you do that, like it, for, especially mixed versus like hook, um, you can come forward. And so like, to me, for me, that makes a big difference. Whereas like the stainless steel rogue Ohio and the, um, Alico, those are easy. I can just grab onto it. Don't even have to like think. I can just yeah. hold it in my hand and I can, you know, pull it with whatever um, setup that I have. So for me, I knew like at nationals, I was like, God damn it. Cause we have the black oxide and I can't like mentally. And I, I've tried like every time I try to grip it right. I, I can't, I, I come forward a little bit and I, I it screws me up. Um, so I'm still like, think I'm capable of, you know, like 780 something, 790 at nationals. I just didn't execute well. And so like, I'll give it up. Like I, I, I messed up. That was on me. And then at mm -hmm. nationals, I mean, at, or at this local meet um, or the Texas state championships, I knew that, Hey, we're going to use a brand new Alico. Um, the stainless steel for me feels very similar in terms of like how I hold the bar. So mm -hmm. I knew it was going to be okay there. And uh, yeah, like the, the nationals situation kind of sucked um, because I, 
we broke our belt squat like two weeks before or three weeks before or something like that, or I broke yeah. it, I should say. Clarify <laughs> <laughs> so no one at, at Recomp gets blamed for it other than you. Yeah. Well, I posted it on my story and like I got like 500 shares in like 30 minutes of people sending it around of like the, the, the rogue rhino like falling off the handles and just like snapping and the pieces like flying everywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like <laughs> now we have one. Um, so I think like there's a couple different things that I changed, but the biggest thing was uh, doing a little bit more like glutes and hamstring extra assistance work um, from, you know, nationals prep until now. And uh, yeah, like I really just made a deadlift like a big priority in training. So like secondary days, quote unquote, or primary days, quote unquote, um, I treated, you know, 100% effort regardless of, you know, how shitty I felt on the day. That was mm -hmm. a big thing. I yeah. Think. No, for sure. Going back to what you were saying before about the bars, it just makes me think of like that bell curve meme where it's like you're, you know, you're <laughs> yeah. in the middle, like, no, you don't understand the coding matters. And like both sides are yep. like, just lift. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's so funny. Like people probably listening to this are like, what the fuck are these guys talking about? But honestly, no, I, I definitely do notice the difference between between the bars. And I, I don't know what to attribute it to, but what I'm, you know, concluding between what I think it is physically, like, you know, in your case with with mixed, I can't say I, I know what that's like, because obviously I just I pull hook and set it fairly quickly. Um, but just based on like my own mental approach to deadlifting on certain equipment and combined with like me thinking maybe the whip is, you know, different on one bar versus the other. I, I don't know. But I, I definitely can see what you're saying, because um, like on I've never experienced that with uh with like the like a like the e coat or not the e coat the the zinc oxide coat mm -hmm. uh, but I've experienced it with like just shittier bars that have like a coat yeah and it and it definitely feels like you know for example like when I used to train at that com commercial gym in DC mm -hmm. um, that was the only place I would tear my thumbs like I never miss on grip I never like the bar never slips but I tore my thumbs so many times in preps for Arnold and like for uh for nationals in 2018 like and it was just you know such a pain in the ass and people would be like oh well like you know you're just lifting but if i had trained on a different bar i probably wouldn't have torn my thumbs but anyway um to go back to what you were saying about uh your prep for this meet it is i i i think that this lends itself nicely to like the general conversation we're going to have because uh in your situation like putting that much on your deadlift when you are already as elite as you are is a huge thing. And I think that one thing to to note on top of what you said about, you know, adding the accessories in and, and treating the both days, whether they're primary or secondary, I, I put the quote unquote, because I'm going <laughs> to say something after this, um, putting them both, you know, essentially treating them both with 100%. I think it's a, a nice shift to see because I think Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in more recent time, you've put a lot of emphasis on your squat because you knew your deadlift was always your bread and butter, um, that you knew how to progress it. And a lot of effort would go toward doing a ton of belt squat volume to pushing the squat volume. And then you shifted priorities when you noticed that something needed more attention going forward. And I think that ultimately lends itself to one of the topics that we're going to talk about today, which is that like your demands or, or, you know, your, your volume, intensity, frequency requirements, whatever, like they're not static. And over time, especially as you start to approach, you know, elite status, you need to identify that weakness or identify that deficit and attack it. Right. And you might need to shift focus from, 
from one thing to another. Yeah, and I think it's kind of when you see momentum, you chase it a little bit more uh, because that's how it works. Like in powerlifting, like a lot of times you will not see any progress, you know, in a certain period and that's fine, right? And then, you know, when something clicks, you like, I coach um, this uh, Olympic level thrower and we are trying to like teach him sumo deadlift and all in the very short time we've been working together. And it's, you know, very difficult. Um, sumo is very uh, tricky. Um, and so like at the last few weeks of prep, he was really like grasping it. And so it went really well. And, you know, we had this kind of like period before the meet where things weren't really clicking. And all of a sudden, right before the meet, it starts clicking. Great. After the meet, you know, typically we'd do an off season, full off season, all right, we're do you know, conventional or whatever variation, right? But things were trending well and like things were going great those last couple of weeks. So I was like, okay, let's pull back a little bit on the intensity, but we're still going to be pushing like the specificity of sumo deadlifts, getting singles practice because things were going really well. And so like mm-hmm. being able to push that afterwards, um, even in a situation like that, I think is, is worth it. Um, same thing for me, right? Like after nationals, I kind of had this feeling of like, I think if I do this and I add this one thing, I think this will work. And so I was like, okay, let's just, you know, transition to this and see how it goes. Um, and it went really well. And like, you know, again, you know, I pushed both days regardless of how I felt um, and performance was increasing despite, you know, fatigue kind of there. Um, and so like, you know, I, I just struck while the iron was hot, you know? Yeah, no. And and that's what I was going to mention before. You know, you talk about pushing both days when you feel uh, like shit, you know, there, there are times for sure right? Where there is a day that has, you know, priority, right? You know, obviously your training still had a day that was prioritized, which is the week that you compete your Saturday, uh, you know, SBD day. But I think that if you don't see as much of a disparity uh, between performances across days, which obviously there was one, but it wasn't severe and you didn't see as much interference, like that is the sign to the lifter that you can push, right? And, and the, what makes it a secondary day is that you're just a little bit weaker that day. Right. Exactly. And you still need to attack it with the same tenacity. And, and, you know, I think nowadays, I, you know, all over social media, you see primary day, secondary day, tertiary day, like people just throw these words around. And I think sometimes people don't even know what they're saying, like what it means, mm-hmm. but then it's also like an excuse for, you know, just not necessarily pushing a certain day as hard. Um, which I think just ultimately leaves progress on the table. Yeah. Uh, one one interesting thing because you mentioned about your your athlete, the thrower. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I follow him. I can't remember his name right now. It's Mike escaping Brazil. Mike, right? And I've literally had athletes where we'll pick up momentum in training that's just so strong. I'm like, find a meet, just find one, mm-hmm. because like I have lifters who compete, and this was this was more easy to do. Uh, you know, pre COVID, I guess, you know, now that things are more regularly scheduled, it's, you know, it could be done again, but I have some lifters who only really like compete on the local level. And, you know, if they qualify for Nats, they'll do it. But like the most, most of their competitive career is going to be done at the local level. We'll just strike gold in training. And I'm like, find a meet four to six weeks from now. Like this is too good to waste. Like, let's just do it. I do that too. Yeah. It's smart. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what you said after nationals, I had that exact same experience after 2018 nationals um, where, you know, a lot of people will make the decision after a meet to kind of pull back, reset. It's like, okay, let's, you know, start over, work on some weak points, whatever, right? Variation. Mm -hmm. But the prep going into that meet was the first time that 
in years that Joey and I had dropped from three days of squatting to two days. And for whatever reason, it just went fantastically well. And there was so much momentum that we identified that we were like, let's just do the same fucking thing. Like the meet ended and we jumped right back into it as if it weren't, you know, any sort of reset period. And from that, like October 2018 to like January 2019 stint, that was easily like the at if you're correcting for like the level of like eliteness I was at, that had to be like the best run of progress I had had up till that point and probably in in the past couple of years as well on on squat and deadlift and i think that it you know you have to have that intuition like in your situation you essentially realized what you were doing was successful but there was some missing piece and in your case you know like you said was just kind of that um you know the the gluten hamstring accessories since your uh deadlift you are very you know quad dominant I put that in quotes. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, only really ever feel beat up in your quads. You don't feel your back too much. But, you know, when you're loading 99%, 100%, whatever, it's like everything is going to get involved if there's any sort of breakdown. So, mm-hmm. and it, awesome. it, it just made it just made sense to do because of the lack of hamstring glute work I was already doing um, yep. or I wasn't doing. So it was like, okay, you know, I can try this and, and just see it. And if it, you know, makes sense and it's working you know, okay, let's see how it goes. And then two, three, four weeks later, I'm pulling 750 regularly, you know, at, at you know, at a, you know, modest, you know, at eight, nine single. Right. Um, and so I was like, okay, it just kept going and kept going. And, you know, sure enough, you know, where we're talking about like a secondary primary day, that secondary day, quote unquote, was going pretty good. And, you know, I think the reason why people take a big, you know, Hey, this is my secondary. So I'm going to pull off and like they they do feel poorly on that day and so like with sumo deadlift specifically and i've had this discussion with certain people um like sometimes like you're you're so fatigued or you know you know taxed that the movement itself feels off like it feels foreign it feels weird um and so like your position is more forward because you know like your your quads are shot or whatever is shot and so you kind of already pull back on that day and like somehow if you can like get it to click in your head where it's like okay this is the the movement and this is how it feels and even though i'm hurting or like kind of achy this is still going better than last week and then the the next week kept you know springing forward and it kept getting and i was like okay like let's find a meet and i was actually going to do a meet like four weeks before that one and i like tweaked my back um you know on, on a squat and um, so I had to kind of pull off a little bit and then it just so happened like the next meet was going to be this Texas state championships meet, which worked out great because this was the meet that we actually had national level refs versus the other meet that I would have done wouldn't have. So even if I pulled 805 or 365.5, it wouldn't have been a actual American record because there was no national level judges. So it just somehow, you know, worked <laughs> and then I yeah. did that and then nailed it. And, you know, cool. This is my first open American record I've ever had. Louis Simmons would be so proud of you for adding in your accessories, dude. <laughs> exactly. Because you think about it, it's like, okay, like it's, you know, I, I don't get too much, I don't get beat up too much from, you know, sumo delif volume or anything like that. I don't feel that much on my glutes or hamstrings. So yep. why add so much emphasis on it? And so like, I just did it just to do it. And, you know, it, it helped. Um, but like, I can handle a lot already. So I was like, okay, let's just see. And I can, you know, add in some, you know, hard um glute hamstring work that 
um, usually would tax most people. So I, I would be like, you know, my hamstrings or glutes would be tight or sore a little bit. Um, but it doesn't really affect my sumo deadlift, like top end strength, really. It doesn't feel like it. But it did yep. add somehow, you know, to the, the end game of it. Um, yeah. So it worked. No, absolutely. I mean, there's there's obviously muscular fatigue associated with it. But I think if you're used to that, like that like global feeling of fatigue, like everyone who power lifts will know what I'm talking about, right? Where you, you get sore and that's one thing, but when you are, you know, sore from like axially loaded movements, like a squat or a debt, you know, or you're sore from something like a deadlift, it's like what you said before. It's like you, you almost become like dumber technically. Like you just feel like the movement becomes sloppier as well. And you feel like you can't use certain body parts. So even though you were probably feeling sore in ways that you hadn't, it's just such a, it almost feels like peanuts compared to the feeling of like really being beat up from, from the competition movements. And then, like you said, you know, when you're setting up for your, your pull, you know, you don't feel your glutes or hamstrings really, you know, engaging at any point in the setup where you're like, oh, wow, that's sore. This is going to make me more tentative or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've had, I have extra, I've had exercises like that for myself. Like I would do, and I still do them like these conventional deadlifts a couple days before my uh, primary sumo deadlift day. And they've made a huge difference for years now. Like it's been since 2018, whenever we would take them out, my deadlift just would tank. And we would take them out as an attempt to like, you know, dissipate fatigue and, and give my deadlift an opportunity to shine. And it ironically ends up being the exact opposite because for whatever reason that that posterior chain work that, you know, upper back stimulus, you know, stimulus just makes a huge difference, especially like for me, that sensation of breaking the floor is made so much easier for me when I'm doing like these conventional deadlifts. I mean, it is so uh, conventional deadlifts versus sumo is so much more stress, so much more demand, it's just so much more taxing muscularly that it makes sense like that that is a, you know, big part of your, you know, volume um, gauge, if you will. Mm -hmm. The I, I'm impressed that you were, you know, able to perform at such a high level on both days for deadlifts, because the hardest part for me is exactly what you were saying before, where like when technically things feel off when you're fatigued, my deadlifts, like if, if I because there are blocks where both deadlift days go really well for me. There are blocks where one day is really good and there's one day that's really, really fucking bad. And the day that it's really, really bad. I feel like I've completely forgotten how to deadlift. Yeah. And, and cause it's once I feel like I can't use my legs, like it's over. Dude. And that, that same feeling is exactly how I was like for a while. And just the last like year or whatever, it changed. And we're like that second day, secondary day in quotes, it somehow just felt close enough where it was like, okay, like I can still push this. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird how it just happened all of a sudden. Yeah, I <laughs> I literally pray for the days or the blocks where that happens cuz for me it's it's somewhat unpredictable. Like deadlift performance for me has been pretty consistent over the past, you know, 2 years. Um and progress has been good, but in terms of like getting those 2 days to maybe be closer together in performance has been pretty unpredictable, I would say, and it's just I mean, it's miserable it's miserable when you're working up and it's like three reds and you're like, this feels like a brick today is not gonna, today is not gonna move. But, but you definitely feel like you use more of your back in, in your deadlift. Then you. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So I've I, gotten better. I've yeah. gotten better. 
Like I look back at, at videos of myself pulling from like 2017 or 2018, still pulling sumo. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me cringe. Cause it's just <laughs> disgusting. It's so bad. And like, yeah, it's, but I've gotten better. But I, people, I people don't remember though, that you pulled conventional, like in comp. Yeah. 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 Dude. People don't remember that I pulled conventional in comp bench, close grip and squatted narrow as hell. Mm -hmm. And then I switched yeah. and now I'm a cheater. <laughs> but like your deadlift, I mean, people know that you have this, you know, crazy arch and short range of motion on bench. So they associate you like probably having shorter arms, but you don't, you have longer arms. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, dude, it's funny. Cause like, I'll be at the gym with, uh, benching with people and they will be, you know, no arch or like a moderate arch and we're at like the same rack height. Or I'll bench with like Rob Escalante and he's like two rack heights lower than me on bench. And I'm just like, are you like, what, what's going on here? And then, or they'll say, you know, what's going on? And I'm like, dude, my wingspan is like 5'11". Like I have pretty long arms. Yeah. So it's not like I have, you know, obviously the arch helps, but I'm not like gifted otherwise leverage wise for bench. And right. Thankful for it because honestly, like I feel bad, you know, saying this. All you short arm people out there, like you, <laughs> you have easily the worst handicap for powerlifting. Like I don't think there's anything worse for powerlifting than having short arms. Having short arms and a really long torso. Well, I mean, just like one singular. Yeah, just thing. one singular thing. Okay. Like if there's one, if there's one thing I could forego leverage wise, it would be having short arms. Yeah. Because if you if you can't pull, like it's it's over for you. <laughs> I mean, which is great for the, it's like the same thing where it's like, okay, I have the long arms and my bench is amazing. But if you have the short arms and your, your deadlift's really good, like Keiko, right? Like yeah. then it, it works out really well for you. <laughs> like you're in a really yeah. good spot, but it's, it's hard. I think it's more rare to have a really good deadlift with very short arms than to have a good bench with a little bit longer arms. No, for sure. That's like, like somebody who comes to mind for me that I'm just so impressed by like in terms of both absolute strength and the progress that he's made is Bork because deadlifts were a huge obstacle for him for the longest, longest time. Yeah. And like he's pulled, I can't remember his best in comp, but it's somewhere in like that 330 to 335 range. I, I think I he think. did 722. Yeah. Okay. So three, yeah. what is it? 327. Yeah. And then in training, I think he's pulled, you know, somewhere in that like 730, 740 range, but that's like, yeah, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So, um, but back to the topic for today, because this is, I think the two of us are like very like archetypal athletes to talk about for exactly what we wanted to discuss today, which is basically, you know, when your training gets stagnant, whether that's because you've reached your genetic ceiling, like maybe you aren't just the most gifted lifter and, and progress is just hard to come by, or you are at this elite status. And like you were saying at the beginning, you know, uh, or when we were talking earlier about how, like, you know, if you've been competing for a while, you know, two and a half kilos here, five kilos here is amazing. Um, but when you're at that point, like you can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect the same results. I mean, we know that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and expecting different results. Right. And having to be more aggressive and resourceful and, you know, essentially do what you did where you take these these notes from when things went really well and your response has to be how do i do a little bit more than this or how do i improve upon this and find the holes in it and not oh this went really well let's keep doing this because the marginal benefit every time you rerun what's worked is just it's going to get smaller and smaller 
and smaller. And before you and I got on this pro- uh, on this podcast, you had mentioned like a flow chart mm-hmm. uh, for you know this course of action that anybody listening to this can can follow and essentially you know help them determine how to how to come out of those those periods of of stagnation or plateau. So I wanted to to toss it over to you and hear what you had to say about this flow chart and kind of give people some more context. Yeah. So you know, I I think it's like the problem that I think a lot of people do at the middle or intermediate range don't see at the higher level um, where, you know, if you go nine for nine, right. And you have huge PRs and everything's great. Right. And now it forces you on your next meet that you have to go nine for nine again. And you actually actually have to get tangibly stronger on each lift to ensure that you add more to your total. Right. Because if you make one mistake, it's all over your totals down, you know, your, your PRs are down. Um, yep. So what that means is like the incremental two and a half, five kilos of, you know, tangible strength is probably not enough, right? Like going into your next meet, like if everything goes perfectly and everything is, you know, execute perfectly, I think I have, I'm pretty good at executing in meets, you know, relatively speaking, I do a okay job. I still think you have to get really that much better to ensure that, okay, whew, everything's safe and I can afford a little bit of a, uh, Misexecution a little bit, right, and still mm-hmm. end up with the big PR on, on squat, bench, or deadlift. Um, yeah. So we're kind of talking about the flow chart in terms of, you know, trying to make progress and you know, add more on either the volume, you know, intensity or frequency, and that could be on you know some accessory lift. It could be on, um, you know, making the the work that you're doing a little bit harder, you know, in terms of like self limiting variations or you know longer pauses or you know, adding a pause, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Something that I actually started doing, and you know, maybe we could. I'll just bring it up here, and then we'll talk about it later. I guess a little bit more um, is like on deadlift. You know, and I've I think I heard um, it was either Marcellus or Brad Coolyard, somebody talking about the deadlift, or I think it was maybe you on one of your coaching calls or something. You're talking about like range of motion on deadlift, and where people that have shorter arms. Um, like the, the actual demand for their conventional deadlift or whatever deadlift they do is is much higher. Like the, the work and the stress that it creates is much mm-hmm. higher, right? Like it's very intuitive that we think of stuff like that. Um, and so like you can do that even with, you know, someone that has a normal, you know, longer or shorter range of motion on deadlift. So like, for example, and this sounds like, and I've never mentioned this to you, but I think like adding deficits on a conventional deadlift, I, I don't think there's any merit there for like hey you're getting faster off the floor or anything in terms of like positional changes that's going to really make a difference i think it's like you think of it as in you're doing this more difficult version that it makes it a little bit more taxing but you're still doing the same you know if you're doing a set of four right it's still same set of four but you're actually doing more you know overall range of motion or um, a little bit more demanding which is can be a good option you know in the off season or transitioning into you know your peak you know the last x weeks of prep um, mm-hmm. Stuff like that, you know, there's there's ways to be creative and kind of bridge yourself into either changing one of those, you know, options, volume, intensity or frequency. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, for me, like I, I so I definitely I think it was an episode of because uh, you said Marcellus. I think it was actually a Q&A that Marcellus and I did. It was the one I think when we were in San Antonio that he uploaded and I was talking about like deficit deadlifts and I was like, oh, it's, you know, more taxing and less specific. So I'm not as big of a fan of it. Mm. And I think for the most part, I still, I still hold uh, by that, but I definitely see what you're saying where it's like, you're, 
the movement, assuming it's like a, a mo- you know, a modest deficit and not something right. insane, yeah. right? It's yeah. it's similar enough. And now you've found a way, like you said, you know, we're talking about range of motion, like you're getting more work in for every given pound that you lift. Mm-hmm. Um, just a so little bit, just a little yeah. bit, you know, on there, because I don't you don't want to change it too much and make it this weird movement where it's, you know, like, again, I'll, I'll preface this saying it's like for conventional only. I do not yep. condone sumo deficit deadlifts ever. Okay, I don't want anybody to do that. <laughs> I think it, that like the positional change for for that, even if it's a small like height, that's a big big deal um, for sumo yep. deadlift. For conventional deadlift, it's not changing too much. You'll be a little bit more upright, I guess, probably if you're getting your your legs through on a, like a deficit. Um, but yeah, I, I think if you just change something just slightly on that for conventional, I think it can be useful. Yeah. No, I mean, I can definitely see it. Like one of the one of like the the load limiting options, I guess I've used a lot um, for like a lot of conventional deadlifts just has been beltless. Um, Like I really like that. Um, I mean, obviously, it's not affecting range of motion necessarily, but but it makes it more demanding a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's been a big one for me. But for people listening, you know, I think that if we're talking about incremental changes, because chance you and I spoke about this on how you get to the point of being able to do more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually spoke about this on my uh, mentorship call with my newer coaches. So for those of you listening who don't know, uh, Chance is one of three coaches that I've brought on to the team. And we have these mentorship calls. It's me, uh, Eric Larson, and Aiden Rader. And one of the topics that I was talking about is like sometimes, right, especially when you get to the point where progress is, is few and far between, right? You have this point where like, the work capacity that you have currently to be able to have full recovery for either the next session or the next microcycle, however you're defining it, right? But your ability, your recoverability, right? It could be at this level dictated by your work capacity and the amount of work that you need in order to actually make tangible progress on a lift is up here. And we were talking about it within the context of like um, periodization for uh, the example that I gave was like how a lot of like heavier lifters can tolerate, you know, uh, speci- we were basically talking about like, um, whether or not, you know, having this like linear periodization approach. So like training specifically one skill for one period of the training year, training another skill for another period of the year, training another, most people don't do that, right? We train, you know, heavy singles or heavy top sets pretty much year round. There's a lot of blurring of the lines between blocks. We were talking about how a lot of like heavier lifters usually just have, you know, poor work capacity relative to maybe some smaller leaner lifters and how we might be at that point where progress what's needed for progress lies above where their work capacity is currently at so we might need or it would be beneficial to have this dedicated period of working that up right so if you're on the other side of that or you're you know experiencing the same thing because progress is so um scarce right we're talking you know elite level lifters it's like we need to find ways to to push that to elevate that, right? We need to find these incremental ways where we can do that safely, where we can do it effectively. And, you know, one of the things that you had mentioned uh, before we got on this call is like, let's say you are a two day a week squatter, right? And you're looking for ways to, you know, incrementally be able to squat more. And maybe every time you've gone up to three days of squatting, you've just gotten tanked, like you're destroyed, you know, uh, a belt squat variation very well could be that, that, you know, to, uh, a, valid way of bridging the gap Mm -hmm. right and you'll be able to accumulate more volume 
um, and essentially, you know, get yourself accustomed to a marginal increase in stress where potentially down the road, whether it's the next block or the one following that, you'll be able to squat three days a week and not have it feel as miserable. Or maybe, you know, you had this extra belt squat day and you just feel better anyway and you didn't even need yep. to. Um, but these are the kind of changes that we're talking about because I think in many circumstances, people, like you said, Chance, you know, you execute well in competition or you perform well and you are like satisfied in the sense that we don't look to the programming and, and scrutinize it. Right. And, and what you said is absolutely right before, because, you know, you could add two and a half, five kilos to a lift and go into your next meet and perform worse. Right. It could be something silly execution wise. You know, it could be uh, a jumped command. It could be a technicality of missing depth, but it could also just be like an actual strength fluctuation. Right. Because you go nine for nine, everything goes perfectly. And then the next meet comes around like a one percent, two percent fluctuation in strength is, is very easy to have. And then you miss and then your total's down, right? And when you're an elite level lifter, that's why it's so impressive when we see, you know, people like Russ or people like Keiko, like go nine for nine repeatedly and do it at higher level meets because the standards are high. The the amount of progress they're making meet to meet is is pretty marginal, right? But being able to put that together at that level over and over is what is what makes it so impressive. Right. So when you fall into this intermediate category where maybe, you know, it is much easier to make progress or maybe there's an opportunity that you're not just yet recognizing. Um, I think having that, you know, almost sense of urgency where you come off of a great meet and, you know, you, you celebrate it, you're proud of it. Of course, you know, you should be happy if you have a great performance, but, you know, go through that program with a fine tooth comb and, and figure out where where you can improve upon, because, Exactly like you said, you know, there are plenty of times where you you come off of a, a strong meet and you kind of have this expectation that everything is going to be just as perfect. And then, you know, one missed attempt and your totals down, you know, 12 and a half kilos. And, you know, there's <laughs> that's not a not at all what you end up expecting. Yeah. And, and for me as like just an athlete in person, like in in powerlifting, I never want to set myself up to you know be forced where like hey i have to be 100 percent just like i was last time and if anything goes wrong like you said the, any fluctuation I'm, I'm down like i cannot afford that at going to raw nationals right so i really want to make sure i'm doing like the complete all my homework before i get to this situation and i know what's going on and um yeah like you know kind of what you said where we can kind of try to bridge the gap in some of these other ways where you're doing like a, a belt squat in between um, you transitioning to two to three. I think at the higher level, there are very few options that we can really look to, to, to do that, right? As an intermediate, there's so many ways we can figure that out, right? Because you're, you're definitely not maxing out your frequency or volume or intensity um, and in that early stage of powerlifting, I, I think. I think there are very few amount of people that are in that situation. Yeah. Um, and, and usually if you're a newer, that's the idea where you just go up a weight class, right? But I think for like, you know, people like you and I, we we're already near that top, like for me, I'm like near that top five um, range where you're trying to win, you know, the 83s, right? Um, you you can't afford to just like go up a weight class and when you put so much into this and yep. you know, you know that like all you have to do is just 
you know, make this lift, make this lift, and then you do this, and then boom, you have it. It's right there. So it's like we see it. It's so close that it's not worth it to, you know, try to just okay, well, I'll, I'll call it quits and go up a weight class and you know become in this range of irrelevancy. <laughs> like yeah, I mean, I think I think just in general, going up a weight class is is like an easy way out most of the time. You know, you're not. If you're listening to this, there's like a 99% chance you're not Charlie Dixon. You're not Marcus Adudu, where you just have so much lean body mass and the cuts are absolutely crushing you where it just makes sense to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, you had mentioned, Chance, that you were considering moving up a weight class. And I'm um, so glad I didn't. <laughs> right yeah. after Nationals. Yeah. Yeah. You were, you were saying after Nationals, you were considering going up a weight class. And I think that exactly what we've been saying you know it it comes down to really scrutinizing the program and for some people you know you're an intermediate it could potentially be you know finding a way to sustainably get that frequency going up or maybe i do need to be doing more volume or maybe the day that i'm calling the secondary day i'm just taking way too easy or you know for an intermediate or for someone like you funny enough right it could be like a you know weak point uh, addressing thing where like doing something as simple as, you know, glute ham raises or, you know, 45 degree hypers, whatever it is, right? Like mm -hmm. that could be the, the, the secret, you know, piece for you. But I think that everybody would do well, you know, athlete and coach, even if a meet was wildly successful, better than you ever could have anticipated to go through and say, okay, how do we make sure that we can, see momentum similar to this going forward because you know i've experienced it as a coach and it, and it sucks when it happens but you know you have this big run that an athlete has going into a competition and they crush it and then like training afterward is just kind of you know it, it doesn't go as well mm -hmm. right and then they go into the next competition and maybe they've gotten stronger on one or two of the lifts but then another one they didn't get stronger and then they miss a third attempt and it's like okay we've gotten stronger on paper but the outcome ended up being worse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in situations like that, potentially the answer was really, you know, exactly like I was saying before, just not being satisfied with the, the great day, the great performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the going like, so back to the flow chart, um, going through all of your options and, you know, after, you know, the point where we're at, right. Like I squatted three times a week, you know, bench five times a week, deadlift twice. Okay, frequency is checked. Like, there's nothing there. You know, like, I, I don't want to, if anything, in the off season, it'd be something like a reduction, right, on the frequency. But leading into the meet, probably not going to reduce the frequency on any of those. Okay, so probably not there. You know, volume. Okay, if I want to add, you know, on a, on a weak point, right, like glutes or hamstrings, you know, there you go. Okay, that might maybe something. Um, do I want to push, you know, squat volume more? No, because my knees were kind of beat up a little bit. So I don't think that's worth it, right, in, in the grand scheme of things. So deadlift isn't worse off. Um, so that's an option. You know, it, it takes each, the coach or the athlete, in my sense, for myself, I coach myself, it, it's both, right? Like, I, I have to be able to go through everything and pick it apart and then figure out what, what we're going to do from there. And I think, to me, it's, like, very impressive, you know, for you, like, watching your bench progress over the years. Because it's not easy to be, you know, 183 and stay at 183 for eight years, nine years or whatever it's been, right? And figure it out piece by piece by piece. What worked? What didn't work? Okay, we got to go through this and fix this. And then, okay, this, you know, this worked. And then we add this in. And it's very difficult to do that repeatedly and continue to make progress. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think that's a very big 
sign of where you can identify the trends and you can really look at things objectively. And, you know, you have to be able to do that to be a top level lifter or coach, I, I think. And so it's easy to make progress when you're not, you know, having to exhaust all these options. When you have to exhaust all these options and you're able to actually figure it out, that's that's a very big sign of someone that obviously knows what's what's going on and can do this for other people. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I really appreciate that, first of all. And and second, I think, you know, when I when I really started to become, you know, a bench specialist, right? Don't Over say the, uh, don't say that. Like you no, no, you're no, a technician, not, bench technician, not a specialist. Okay. All okay, right. fair. I know I know where you were going with that. I know that I've, you know, my other lifts are, are solid, but yeah. I, I mean it obviously more in a in a technical sense. So yeah. a bench yeah. technician. I think what I've been grateful for is obviously this whole process of, of figuring out how to really maximize leverages has been very, very difficult, but ultimately rewarding because I think I've been able to coach bench at a level that 99.9% of people can't. Like I, I just see more things from having learned so much on my own. Um, I know what programming implementations to make based on, you know, people's setups, like all, all this different stuff, right? But for my own training, I think what I'm grateful for is like, I have pretty much maxed out that slider, right? So it's like, I can almost admit, you know, almost omit like one uh, set of things that I can go after, right? Where when you start to struggle, right? And progress is is slow. When you have all of these things in front of you, it is it is a bit daunting, right? Because like you mentioned, you know, you're it is a flow chart, right? You're going through so many different things where it's like, okay, is it volume that I need to push? Uh, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm feeling beat up. So maybe not. Is it frequency I need to push? Is it intensity, right? There's so much in front of you. But in, in my circumstance with regards to bench, it's like, I know that technique is like, it's maxed out, right? So I can, and I know frequency is maxed out. Cause like, I mean, I guess I could start doing two a days or something ridiculous like that, but you know, that's maxed out as well. So it's like, there are very few things now that I can go after. And if I'm not making progress, I can almost assuredly like attribute it to, to one of those things. Like almost every time that I've just increased the total weekly sets on bench, like assuming I'm working at six days, it's like bench goes better. Like it's just, it's it's very easy to know what changes to make mm. uh, in my situation. That's true. Yeah. One thing one thing I wanted to say before is I'm wondering who the first coach is going to be. If you're listening to this, maybe you want to be brave and try it out. I wonder who the first coach is going to be that is going to start programming three day week deadlifts because I think it's been so. <laughs> so uh, I uh, no listen listen listen. listen. <laughs> I say it I say it for for there are a lot of like lanky sumo deadlifters who probably don't get very beat up from sumo. Like I have multiple lifters and and almost myself included, like who just feel more beat up from squatting than deadlifting. And people regard squatting three days a week as completely normal. But if you're like a, you know, a 74 kilo lifter with like a six foot wingspan, regardless of that, I feel like it's just generally accepted. Like, yeah, two days a week of deadlift. That's all we do. I'm wondering who's going to be the person who's like, we're going to try three days a week deadlift for you really long arm sumo deadlifters and see what the fuck happens. It, I, okay. So I have to, I'm going to have some back and forth with you on this because I don't think that it, it makes sense at all. So like, where's, where's, <laughs> well, let me, let me go into it. Let me go into it. Like, so sumo, de, like sumo deadlift volume or, you know, whatever the, the actual stimulus from there doesn't have much carryover to squat. It, it may have a little bit, but since it, the range of motion is less, especially for the lanky lifters, it's not going to benefit your comp squat that much it's going to impede your comp squat work during the during training would you agree 
if you if we push deadlift more even if it's like you know just practice like even if it's singles like just having that there is taking away a little bit from the squat i mean maybe right like it's all relative mm -hmm. you know i think that i think that no, I mean, it is all relative. I think yeah. that for most people, right, it's going to be too much. Like we we have these generally accepted frequencies because for 99% of people, this is what is sustainable and this is what isn't. But I, I almost feel like they're, they're, and I'm not saying it's, you know, I don't have anybody I have deadlifting three days a week. So clearly I don't have, this is not the hill I'm going to die on. <laughs> but <laughs> but I do I do think that there are probably some people who could, could stand to tolerate it if they were in I, I know I could because my, my hip flexors, adductors, I never feel anything. So like people ask me like, how are you deadlifting 90 something percent every every other day or well, every you're making other... progress? So you don't need to do it. Well, but I'm saying if we wanted to use me as like the guinea pig for this subject yeah. you know, that you want to try, um, I could probably do it. But I, yeah. I think it, my squat would go down. I, I, it would be difficult for me to maintain, you know, like so like, OK, right. Like we do. Let's let's just think about it. Like I'm going to do a third deadlift session. I'm already deadlifting like 90% or something pretty close every every deadlift session. Okay. Yep. So even, let's just say I do 80% just for skill practice sake. That yep. that day, I mean, I still have to like try. Like I still have to try to pull like 680 something. I can't just like, oh, I'm just going to pick it up. And it's still yep. putting effort, right? Like yep. that is still going to be a little bit more stressful that it's sure. going to impact, you know, squat, I think. So I, even if I did that, I think, okay, you have to really just say, I don't really care about squat. And I could do it and I think it would help my deadlift, but I, I don't know how much it's worth it. So my so my point of view on this is that, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, right? If you told people that you were benching five days a week or six days a week, they'd be like, you're crazy, right? Like you're not going to be able to recover in time. And I guess the point that I'm making is like, you know, we have, you know, in your in your circumstance, your if I correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think your set count per session on deadlifts is particularly high, no. right? But the right? so, but even but relative intensity on the top sets and the back downs are still very high. Yeah, absolutely, sure. But there are plenty of people where we're we're gonna push volume, right? Like mm -hmm. they're going to be if we compare lifter A to lifter B, you know, lifter B might be performing you know an absurd number of sets compared to what lifter A can handle, right? So the point I'm getting at is that like, I almost feel like you know while while it is true that most people would not be able to handle it, and it's not something you necessarily should do it's almost in my mind i don't see too much of a difference between like you know putting super high volumes on on a lifter who needs it uh with you know distributed across the two days versus the three days and making like this you know segmental or marginal increase to the third day of doing like those you know 80 percent singles let's say it's like there is some neurological benefit there Definitely. that maybe doesn't have the muscular fatigue carryover component because yeah. it is just you know singles and 80 percent and i'm just thinking about it as like you know we program submaximal volume for a lot of people mm -hmm. and before we started this call we were talking about how like a lot of like you know stronger male lifters probably benefit a lot from you know the submaximal lifting and i think that Part of what makes submaximal lifting so valuable, right, is it just it just gives us this opportunity. And I've and I've talked about this before. I think like for every rep that we do, there's like a benefit to us, and then there's like a cost to us, right? And this is dependent on like pretty much just the weight on the bar, yeah. right? Like for every rep that we do at X percent, there's a benefit to our strength and muscle gain, and then there's like a cost to our fatigue, right? So like part of what makes submaximal work so great is that like 
we're able to extract, essentially the ratio ends up being better for us. Like we're able to extract, you know, maybe less benefit than we would from a harder rep, but there's less fatigue associated. So we can do like more of it because mm -hmm. it's submaximal and it lets us tack on extra work that will yield more progress, but maybe not dig it, you know, as much fatigue as if we were going to push the RPE. So like in my mind, that's, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fully like with you in your, like your idea here that the skill practice is worth it. That's, that's what you're arguing for, right? That, yeah, I mean, yeah. but eventually, like, could somebody literally get to the point of just sumo deadlifting with a similar structure as a three-day-a-week squatter? I think, I it's think so. No, I, I think so. I just don't think it's adding that much more if you're really going to go for it than, like, like the argument here is that, like, it, my deadlift is so, like, like, ergonomic, I guess, that I can afford to... I'm, it doesn't cost much on the recovery side for what I'm getting on the neurological adaptation of the extra practice, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's what you're arguing for, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. I, I think you're. I mean, I think I, we could do it. I just don't know how much it's really worth it. And then people are going to be like, "Oh, your coach is retarded for having you do <laughs> <laughs> a thir third day of deadlifting." <laughs> like, if you get hurt, it's like, well, no shit. Yep. Yeah. No, I know. It's it's a very uh it's a it's a high risk, high reward thing, both from uh from like you said, like an injury management standpoint and then also like a what the fuck is this guy doing standpoint. <laughs> I agree. I mean that's why that's why I think nobody's done it. Mm -hmm. Like I think for the mo I mean, I think at one point like uh RTS did like their project momentum thing, which was like I think it might have been more. I think it was like four days a week of each, but obviously like I, the RTS model is like fairly high intensity, like pretty much all the time. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a confounding variable there uh, that maybe, you know, if it were structured differently, might have worked, whatever. But like, I almost feel like it's just like this no go zone that people have where they're just like, yeah, like we're not going to we're never going to do this. Because, you know, once someone does that, you know, like all the other coaches, they're like looking, you know, like peeking out and they're like, OK, we'll try it. We'll try it. And then like, you know, they have some their conventional deadlifter trying it. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're going to be broken in no time. Yeah, like Con Connor Borker deadlifting three days a week. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Oh, my God. But, yeah, man, I uh, I had the, I had a convers I had a good conversation with a lifter. I won't mention name of the lifter or the coach, but I had a good conversation with him uh, about, you know, a little over a year ago. It was, like, during COVID where, obviously, like, morale of most lifters was just low in general because – you know, no meets were going on and you were taken out of gyms and all this sort of stuff. And he had always been a strong squatter, like very, very strong squatter. And deadlift was like his problem movement. And he worked with the coach and he, you know, got on a call with me, like just like a, you know, not a consultation or anything, but just like we were just talking. Right. And he was like, man, like, I can't get my deadlift to progress. Like we've tried two days a week. It just crushes me. I've tried one day a week and it just doesn't work. Like my squat's going great, but like my deadlift won't move. And I'm just like, show me what you've done on two days. And he, you know, sends me the layout. And like it, if you are not like very well built for, for pulling, I could understand why the layout that he had would just beat him up to the point where you can't actually get in any productive work. And I told him, I'm like, just, just, go back to your coach and give some sort of, you know, nudge of like, let's just practice some singles on this second day, right? Let's just do, you know, one back down set or maybe two back down sets. We don't need the three or the four, right? I think, I think sometimes like, you know, I know that it was the case when, you know, we started out as coaches or just, you know, a lot of coaches in general, it's like, 
you know, that three to four number, it just kind of sounds right. Like, you know, when you like you're in like middle school or high school and you're taking like a uh, like a, an elective that's like on like physical training or whatever, they're like, you need three sets to perform, you know, it get effective muscle. It's like that's almost like the arbitrary pick. And it's like, you could just do one, you could do two, like mm-hmm. give him the nudge, see what happens, try it out. And like now, now that he's, you know, implemented that his work capacity gradually was able to make strides. His days look more normal now, like a normal two day a week deadlifter. And his deadlift is fantastic, right? Like he's a, you know, mid to high 700s deadlifter now. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and it was in the mid 600s at that point in time. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you're stuck, you you have to be resourceful. Like your work capacity is is a robust characteristic. Like it doesn't just change very quickly, but you need to find ways. And like you said, you need to pick where you're pulling from mm-hmm. and or pick which point you're addressing in order to, to inch that needle, you know, move the needle forward because like nothing's going to change if you don't change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's important, especially with squat and deadlift when you're looking at like improving your deadlift trying to figure out how much does your squat actually contribute to your deadlift because Mm -hmm. that could be a lot of the volume you're already getting right so like you don't need that much deadlift volume if you're doing a lot of squat volume that actually does help your deadlift right so like Mm -hmm. for me that's what i've been doing that i've always kind of known so like now especially going from nationals into this last meet um i was like hey you know i'm already doing a lot of squat volume i'm already doing some belt squats my legs and quads are getting adequately hit i'm doing the hamstring work right so i'm only doing like if you've seen like i do like a top set and then i do like one back down set and i'm done Hmm. and so like people see that and they're like what are your other volume sets i'm nope i'm done like (laughs) I, i do that that one top set um which is you know 90 ish percent it's usually 90 or 88 or 85 percent for you know x reps or whatever and then i'll do like a minus percent set um which is still in that strength range quote unquote um and and for a good relatively intense set right so for like this last session i did pulled 727 at you know a couple few reps in reserve and then i did a back down set of five with 672 um and it was you know still right around the same thing three to four reps in reserve and that was it called it yeah. i did the bunch of squat volume beforehand there's no need for me to try to add a lot more on there and probably get diminishing returns for what the um, risk or not the risk, the cost reward for it would be um, in terms of like fatigue debt that I would get from that. Um, so I just got the skill practice without all the negative effects that you yeah. would get from doing a lot of deadlift volume. Because I know like it, it, it some for some people, they like to get a lot of their deadlift volume just strictly from deadlift. Um, because maybe their squat doesn't carry over well to their deadlift specifically. Um, and you have to be able to identify that, right? Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Wow. I, cause I, we've briefly spoken about this before. I didn't know that it was literally just one top set, one back down. Uh, yeah. So two, two days a week, I deadlift twice, twice a week. And yeah, it's usually like the first deadlift session. If I deadlift only or and deadlift and bench, I'll do like a top set and maybe two sets back down. Uh, and then the other day where I squat and then I deadlift, it's a top yep. set and then one back down set and I'm done. That's nice. That's really nice. But it's also like, too, like you, I warm up to 750, right? Like I take a bunch of singles and practice. It's not like yep. I'm not getting the skill adaptation or the neural adaptation of it. I still get that. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's obviously the difference between someone at your level and someone, you know, 
at a lower level where they're taking three warmups or four warmups and they're there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, in your circumstance, you know, a lot of the working up, you're getting practice, but that's interesting, man. Cause I've always, I've always had a ton of interference between my squat and my deadlift, uh, you know, by virtue of my squat being, you know, fairly wide and, you know, using a lot of my backside and then kind of a similar thing with my, with my pull. Um, I've always, not always, but in, in the most successful periods of my deadlift training, you know, I've always incorporated, you know, higher rep work. I've talked about this ad nauseum on, mm -hmm. on podcasts and on social media. Um, but that's the one thing I haven't tried, you know, things are, things are the setup that we have right now. Steve and I is really good. Um, and I'm, and I'm really curious to see how it plays out, but that's really the one thing that I haven't tried that I'd be curious to at, at some point, because, you know, squat has obviously been my problem lift for the past, you know, two and a half, almost three years now. And like, if I were able to tolerate more squatting and then see the same results or even better from just deadlifting, you know, a top set and, you know, like a single, let's say, and then one set back down and that's it. Like, I'd be really curious to see how that, that goes. Steve, I know will be listening to this. So <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe a couple blocks down the road, I'd be willing to, uh, to try something like this, but honestly, that's because I know in your circumstance, like you said, you use, you know, we're both having interference, but for different reasons. Yeah. Cause yeah. you use your, you know, you feel your quads a lot on sumo deadlift. Mm -hmm. And that's why you believe that there's carryover from squat to deadlift. And then in my circumstance, like there's a lot of, you know, overlapping interference because of how I perform both lifts, but that would be, well, yeah. Well, what about the secret exercise I told you about? Cause if you add uh, that, in, if you add that, in, I did, I did, yeah. I did add the secret exercise. Okay. I did add the yeah. secret sauce this past week. Uh, so I'm interested to see how that goes as well. It definitely, it definitely beat me up a good bit. I have like, oh shit, I haven't been this sore in a long time. <laughs> so, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for how things are set up right now. I'm going into the shadows for a little bit. Gonna just use my social media as, uh, as like more educational stuff for a little bit. Most of it. So in general, I don't know why this happens. I don't know if you've experienced this either. But my winters are the best training period of my entire year. I don't know why, but my the best training I have year after, literally since starting with Joey in 2014, winters are always my best period of training. And then like spring, summertime is just not great. I don't know why. But Well, you were getting hurt into Raw Nationals. What? You were usually getting hurt right around Raw Nationals time. So after Raw yeah. Nationals, I, it makes sense that things would pick up after that, like after you, you got I back to normal. Right. I guess so. Yeah, that's fair. But but that you're uh, right. That that happened to me as well. Like my training now that you mention it, like would go pretty well in December time, despite it being kind of cold and some gyms not having AC uh, or heat. I actually did do well around that time. Yeah. I don't know if anybody listening to this experience is that, but my training has always gone well from like the November to like February period. I don't know what it is. I don't know if there's anything hormonally there, or if it's just total coincidence or like you said something to do with injuries um but yeah i'll be i'll be uh i'm interested to try that every time i've taken a hiatus from social media posting the main list it's been good for me so we're gonna we're gonna take another stab at it but uh what are your what are your competitive plans now that you've done this you know the texas state championship what are you looking to do going forward so i was invited to do the elevate barbell championships meet in colorado it's in mm -hmm. march um, I think that's going to work out well because um, March, it's the beginning of March and I'll do that one. And then we have like collegiate nationals right around the corner. 
Yep. Um, so I'll be able to compete do, you know, push for that and then put up something pretty good. And uh, then we get to focus on the coaching stuff and, you yep. know, all of the things that we got. I know I have a bunch of people doing collegiate and team nationals. Um, so that's going to be fun for us, like our whole team. Yeah. No, for those of you guys listening, I mean, we have an absurd number of people between all of us coaches doing uh, collegiate nationals. So on my end, I have a bunch of, obviously, since it's combined collegiate and junior, yeah. you know, I have my, most of my roster is anywhere from that 18 to 23 year old range. So a ton of people wanting to do junior nationals, uh, our coach, Jaron, you know, coaches a lot of the Hawaii lifters and just has a large roster himself, all in that age group, uh, Aiden as well, you know, Aiden's bread and butter at this point is all these really, really young kids, uh, aspiring, you know, power lifters who are going to be doing this as well. He'll be competing as well. Uh, Aiden will be competing as a 93. Now he saw that he's fun. moving up. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm, I'm glad that he's doing it at first. I was a bit, I was a bit hesitant for him to move up, but I think just like from a muscular, like maturity standpoint, like he almost looks like he's like forcing himself not to grow when he stays down there. Cause like, he's, you know, you don't notice it when you see him wearing his like, like shin height basketball shorts and like XL Gengar t-shirt, <laughs> but, yeah. but the dude's jacked. So I'm, I'm excited to see how he does at 205. Um, for my, for myself, I don't, I don't know when I'm going to compete next. So bro, you're I've, signed up for like three meets in like Texas <laughs> and like Virginia. Dude, dude. Yeah. It's I'm signed up for multiple meets, but I don't, I don't think I'm going to do any of them. Um, you know, I obviously coming off of nationals, uh, had this like recovery period that I had to go through health wise. Everything's good to go again. I definitely could compete soon if I wanted to. Um, and I know I've been on podcasts talking about like, um, you know, being pro USAPL versus IPF. Um, but I think with how things stand right now, with how little we know, I'm, I'm hesitant to compete because, you know, I know that Joey is going to take all of his guys the IPF route. And like if the 83 class just vacates, I don't know that I'm going to want to stay USAPL at least for the first year, especially because USAPL has talked about like, yeah, we're not going to, you know, nobody's going to be banned from competing USAPL. You can always come back. But the last thing that I had heard was that if you compete USAPL, you are banned yeah. from the IPF. I don't know if that's going to change once they officially sever ties and then a new federation takes its place. I have no idea what's going to happen. But, you know, Joey has 383s who are top five where you know it's kind of like a similar conversation to when i was on two white lights talking about worlds where you know if worlds is not that competitive then i don't really see the the merit in saying you're a you know a world champion but conversely it's like if now usapl vacates right and obviously joey has strong pull with his athletes right if most of them leave then it's like okay you know i just don't know there's so there's so much that i that i don't know right now um like I'm sure in your in your situation, Chance. Like I'm sure Keiko is going to go the IPF route. Um, I'd be I'd be skeptical that he wouldn't. Um, so I don't know. There's there's so much up in the air, and I know that Daniela is in a similar situation um, because she wants to go 76 in the IPF. Like that's she wants to have you know an, uh, another shot at that. So yeah, man, it's it's uncertain times, and I feel like I don't know if you've heard any updates from the 
from the uh, the shadow people, but <laughs> I have not uh, I have not heard anything in quite a while. I actually did hear um, at the Texas State Championships meet. Um, USAPL is from what I hear, and again, this is just what I hear that they're going to stick with it until like you know anything is like for sure for sure like they are not gonna basically we we're gonna stick with usapl until everything is down the drain you mean with the ipf yeah but usapl is going to feed try to be associated with them until they very cannot like the very very end okay so meaning that the the new fed is not going to be relevant for a while i don't think okay okay i see so they're gonna they're gonna like you know sit out the whole year of just not being in good standing and not being able to compete but just for the sake of trying to have some sort of uh you know olive branch extended or something along those lines as of now um and then also kind of when you're talking about like who's gonna leave and who's gonna stay and all that kind of stuff um what is the usvi going to do like if this situation happens like like okay, say Keiko goes to goes to um, the new Fed and goes yeah. the IPF route. Like, can I hop over to USVI and get get in? Like, what are we gonna That's do with that? Saying. I think I think that it's in their best interest. I I think they would to answer your question. I think they would do that. Like, I, I think they would yeah. say yes to that because I feel like that would be in their best interest because. You know, obviously that's what's drawing those people to the team. You know, this past year USVI was just the top, you know, USAPL people, and like. I think it would be a no-brainer for a lot of guys because, like, let's say you are, you know, Russ and Delaney. It's like, all right, you know, I'll go Powerlifting America. You go USVI. Let's meet up at Worlds, kind <laughs> yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So I could, I could definitely foresee that happening. Uh, I don't, I don't see why anything would change on USVI's end if that were to, if that were to be the right. Because they're going to be like, oh, cool, we got this surge of like athletes representing us for this like one year, and like, well, it's all going down now after this. <laughs> you know, like, why don't you take in the two three spot from USA Powerlifting, and you know, yeah. get me get me in there and try to break a world record or something deadlift. You know, yeah. Um, no, that I, I think I think they should just do that. But um, one of the weird things is like, how, do you even know how the residency thing works? Like with USV, I have no idea. <laughs> Because it's like all of a sudden, like, like these guys own like you know what apartment over there now, and it's like no way. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like it's like in the bench warmers with like the IM12 written in green crayon. It's like I'm a resident of USVI now. Yeah. I don't know. I have literally no clue. Like I don't know what. Do you know what everybody who competed USVI went through to do it? Because clearly it didn't take much. No, because I thought the issue because Kim Walford was the original one that did that, and like yep. she kind of like you know, reached her hand out to all the other U.S. lifters this last year to like, hey, I'll help you over here. But I don't, I didn't ask her, like, bother to figure out, like, what she actually did. But when she did it originally, there was, like, this weird thing where it's like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I don't even know if we can really do this. And then all of a sudden she did it. And now, like, instantly when this happened, everybody was already there. Like, what did, yeah. like, she had to do some sort of residency they setup. All, like, they all live with Kim now. They're all residents at Kim. Yeah. <laughs> Kim's address. Yeah. Yeah, that must be it. I don't know what the hell they did, dude. Yeah, I have no idea. Holy shit! Did you see? Did you see that kid? It was a sub junior, eighty three, benched uh, two hundred. I saw you. You posted it, I think, on your story. Yeah, dude, he literally looked like a one twenty up top. Like that was the most. It looked like Jake. It looked like Jake Amendola up top, and then like, I don't know, uh, a fifty nine, <laughs> you know, lower half. That was pretty insane. I wonder what his other lifts are. Do you know? Did you see his other stuff? 
I'm sure I could look it up on yeah. Open Powerlifting. I have to check. I'll, you know, I'll check after we get off of this uh, this podcast. But I'd be curious if he's a tank on the other two. That's ridiculous. I don't even know how he would maintain that weight unless he's like five two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It. Did you watch all of it, or did you just like kind of look for the eighty threes and that's it? No, I, I honestly didn't even watch any of it. I just waited for the for the highlights. You know, as as a bench technician, I. I regardless of being a bench technician i don't care about bench only meets at all <laughs> like i can't imagine cutting weight to just bench i'm it sure I, i'm surprised you didn't want to do bench national or bench worlds when it was in japan that one year that would have been pretty cool so i did it's not that i didn't want to do it it's just that you know paying to go do one lift right because like obviously everything's all on our on our own dime yeah and going to japan's not cheap but that would have been a cool trip that you probably otherwise wouldn't have a reason to go to Japan specifically for anything else, right? Well, that's the thing. At some point, I do want to go to Japan. Japan is number one on my list for traveling. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I absolutely, like, anyone who, who knows me or listens, like, Japanese, like, cuisine is, like, <clears throat> chef's kiss. It's my favorite thing in the world. So, like, at some point, I'll make a trip. Um so that was that was the thing for me. Like it just didn't seem like an opportune time to get like the most out of the trip, and then also, like I said, just competing in one lift, you know, and having to pay, you know, a couple grand or whatever it would come out to, just yeah, wasn't worth it to me. But is what it is. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know what's gonna happen, man. Like this with especially with like uh, with worlds and nationals being on the same day, you know, it's gonna. And as a coach, like it, it definitely draws, you know, it, it creates a bit of a, a rift and, and having to choose priorities. Like I was talking about this with Daniela. I was like, if you were to theoretically, you know, go do USVI nationals and then go to worlds, like I can't be there at worlds. Like I, I have, you know, an entire roster of people competing at nationals along with, you know, myself competing at nationals. It's like, it's just such a difficult position to be to be put in. I, I don't know what's going to happen after this year of uh, not being in good standing is, is up. Yeah. It's, it's all new. It's all new to all of us. So, you know, we're, we're going to be in a weird situation, I think, but I think right after this year, we'll have some clarity. Yeah. I think, and I said this on the two white lights podcast and I still stand by it. I really do think that at least with the U S lifters, I think the USAPL will, will win out at least with what they have laid out. Like assuming everything is executed as it's written and as it's promised, so to speak. Um, I really do think that like from a production value standpoint um, and competitive standpoint, we can, we can make this a, a sustainable long-term model by ourselves. Um, but I don't know. I guess part of that is not really knowing too much of like what the IPF has planned because I've always viewed the IPF as just like being very kind of like stagnant in their, in their ways. Right. Like the stream has looked the same for like a million years. Like it's the, the environment of world meets has been the same forever. It's like very quiet, very stern, like not really much of an emphasis on, you know, like there's no music playing. There's no, uh, you know, now I guess they've gotten better with these individual media companies, but it's not anything, you know, it's not a big production. So unless they have something complete 180 that they plan to unveil, I I don't know. I don't know that I have too much faith on that side. It's ultimately like SBD is going to influence some of the top level lifters and where they go. So, you know, if, you know, that's the case and SBD is going to keep the money going, you know, the top level lifters are going to find their way to the IPF. Yeah. 
I mean, that's the thing though about SPD, right? It's like they're gonna have sway, right? Because you have the you have Sheffield, right, as mm-hmm. like the big the big pull. Um, but that's not sustainable. I don't know how you make it sustainable, because like we've seen it. I mean, I guess you could, right? I'm not I'm not claiming to be the you know uh, omniscient being that is aware of all the ways that you could run these money meets. But from what I've seen with money meets, every year they get the the pool the the purse gets smaller. Right. Because you can't just keep giving away this money. So I don't know, you know, some athletes are probably going to to go to the first one because it's going to be the first one. But I don't know how how many years you can keep, you know, getting people to, to show up for that. I have no clue, but we'll see. Yep. Well, this was fun, man. I enjoyed it. I think it yeah. was a really good no, first episode. Great. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, for any of you guys listening. If there are any topics you guys want to hear us discuss, like I said, it's going to be any combination of myself, Chance, Michael, Aiden, uh, Eric, and Jaron, right? So it's going to be a large group of us. All of us have very different fields of expertise or interest to talk about. So any topics that you want to hear us speak about, feel free to let us know. Um, eventually when we get around to it, we'll obviously decide who we think would be best equipped to talk about those things. But ultimately we want this podcast to be this very, uh, diverse set of, of topics, right? We'll talk about really, really nitty gritty technical stuff like we did today and we'll shoot the shit and tell some stories at other times. Right. But we really, really enjoyed doing this for you guys. We hope to keep a relatively consistent schedule for this. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Like I said, my name is Sean. Chance, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, we'll, we'll see you guys in the next one. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Take care, man.